Okay, hey, last time we began, a couple of weeks ago, I'll do a quick recap, talking about the Roman army and how it, it was formidable because of its unified attacks. In warfare, it had a, an array of different formations that it would get into that would have the upper hand or the advantage over its enemy. If you could divide that formation, break it up, then you had a chance. And we said it's, it's little wonder that Paul is drawing on this imagery, living in that world. And we can imagine, can't we, that the devil has its, his biggest foothold in dividing or destroying a church is if he can get a wedge between a leadership of a church and its congregation. If he can drive a wedge between its members. If he, if he can cause us to be self-centered, isolate us, then he has an upper hand and we may be in some danger. So, hence Paul writes to this church, this fledgling church, encouraging them in unity. And he's going to do this right through the chapter. Um, I know we only did verse 1 the first time. Yeah, you're quite welcome. This Why not use the floor space? And uh, in some cultures, in Jesus' culture, what would the posture be? I'd be the one who's sitting, and you'd be the ones. Yeah, a speaker sat to preach, and the listeners stood. It's a bizarre situation, isn't it? Yeah, we can try that next week if you like. Okay, we'll get some mats there, not just kidding. So Paul begins Philippians 2, and he's going to spend the whole chapter talking about unity. And he starts in verse 1, we said last time, and he lays four foundational elements it, it, the, uh, for unity. A, it's their union in Christ as a basis for it. It's God's love for them. It's the spirit of Jesus working within them. And it, it's, it's the love and affection they have towards Paul. And he's drawing on these four strands. He's saying, look, for the love of God and your commitment to Jesus and the spirit that's working in you. And if you care anything about me, do it for me. Work at this. Do it for me. Work at being united. And so that's what it does in verse 1. Now we're in 2 to 4, which we're looking at today. Hey, making progress here. We're going to cover three verses as opposed to one. Don't worry, next time we'll cover a few more than that even. So secondly today, we're going to look at conduct that leads to church unity. Conduct that leads to church unity. I have to say, I'm not preaching this series because we have any issue with church unity here. Because it's the word of God. And, and Philippians, the book, has, has, a, has an array of different themes that we're going to be encountering. This is just where we are at this juncture. But no doubt in God's providence, he'll have something to say to us. Verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. It's a phrase of unity. He wants his joy to make complete because it's already in existence. He told us that in chapter 1. In chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 he says, I always pray with joy. He has a joy towards these, these Christians because of your partnership, this engagement they have with him in the gospel. So he already has this joy. But he wants it to come to its apex, to be amplified if you like. Look, make my joy complete or amplify my joy and this is how they're to do it. By being like-minded. And we're going to spend some time just looking at those, those, those three words where one of them is hyphenated. Again, look, as we know, the, the Bible, like anything being translated, is always difficult. And we'll see in the next one there, Greg, 
that make my joy complete or being like-minded is, I think, have I got it up there, Greg? What is it? There it is, I have. It's, it means to set your minds on the same thing or setting your minds on the one thing. That's what Paul is asking this church of Philippi to do is for them to, to, to get their minds, whatever they may be and whatever they may be happening, is, is to have this singular, unified agenda of focusing on Jesus and serving Jesus. And, and the point he's making is important to this church. There are issues. It's a church that's founded on the gospel, but things are going wrong, and we see that in chapter 4. And here's some of the reasons why Paul may be writing in Philippians 4 too. He says, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. I mean, he's putting that in an open letter to this church. There's issues. There's friction. There's members within this church that aren't sitting next to each other, not because of COVID. <laughs> I'm assuming that's why you're not all next to each other. But because there's friction in their relationship. And Paul is addressing this. And obviously, what this creates is an ongoing ricochet of people and you see this, you know, you know, it's incredible. You, you can turn up in a church when, you know, when someone, this is no joke. I've been in churches when someone hasn't spoken to somebody else for over a decade in the same church. And Paul is writing about a situation like that, warning the church that it erodes who they are and what they are and their power in the community. You see, in Philippi, rather than being a warfare with the principalities and powers, there was some internal warfare going on. And what Paul says in 4.2, as you know, we know it's an ongoing situation, is what he says in 2.2. They're identical in the Greek. Agree with each other in the Lord. In that case, agree to, to work together, but more generally to agree in the, in the gospel. There's some logic behind what Paul may be saying, just reading the book. Firstly, unless they are unified, their partnership in the gospel will suffer. Paul has taken on this team, he's recruited them, if you like, to, to be a part of his gospel enterprise. And the point is, if they're not united, if there's bickering and fighting and division, there is no way they can serve together in the work to which he has joy. Remember, he's joyful about this partnership, but that partnership is under threat. Secondly, their unity is the goal of the gospel in which they're partnering. Christianity doesn't work. It's an alien thing for me to regard this service as something that I turn up to at 10 zero hours, okay, and then depart from at 11.14 and 34 seconds when the last prayer is said. Now, look, there are days when we have to do that. We did it last week, didn't we? When, when we were trying to get away down south, as soon as the service was closed, we kind of made, you know, we scarpered for the, for the door as quickly as we could. Sometimes we have to do that. But if my general approach to church is, 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 is a very private thing that I do and I just turn up here to get my little moment and I disappear, I don't speak to anybody, I don't engage, that's foreign to Christianity. That, in fact, can I say this as strongly as, as this? That is not Christianity. And it's one of the reasons, I mean, we've now got an espresso machine. It, it, 
It's not because we really cared about you drinking coffee. You don't get that down at Starbucks if you're living in Melbourne. Okay? But we cared about people staying, talking, engaging, picking up a chair together. And here's the thing to do next time we, as we pack up this, this afternoon. No, I'm going to finish before this afternoon, <laughs> the end of this morning. Is to say to the person you're speaking to, Let's carry on this conversation whilst we put those chairs away. That's engaging in fellowship. So it's unique to who they are. And thirdly, their unity is the key to their survival in a hostile world. I know in Australia, in South Australia, in Hope Valley, it hardly looks hostile out there, does it? I'm looking out and thinking, hey, what a beautiful day for the beach, okay? Yeah, maybe with a, with a coat on. It may look warm, but it's not that warm out there, is it? But it's, it doesn't feel like a hostile world. But it is. There are powers of darkness at work aggravating our community in opposition against us. And they're not even aware of it. It's what Satan does. He aggravates opposition towards believers and the work of Christ. And Paul is saying this unity for the gospel is it's, it's important at that level. If we're disunified, it's why we don't hang our laundry publicly. I hate, let me tell you something I hate. It's a strong word. I hate YouTube putting churches or speaking about churches in a derogative manner. I hate that. Which means I don't, I don't like it when Christians go to join on the bandwagon either. It's awful for us to be talking about each other publicly. Please don't ever do that, Christian. Whatever challenges we have as a church, it's something we deal with as a church. And we, and we don't give the world that's hostile towards us fodder. We don't give them an advantage by telling them all the things that we that we don't like about each other, all the things we're getting wrong. We're all going to get things wrong. We're going to get things wrong, as well as some of the mega churches. But the place of debate is not out in the world. It's something we do to each other. You see, our safety as a church is dependent on us working together in a unified way, dealing with issues for sure when they arise, but not sharing them with our world that's just looking for an opportunity to pounce on us. So you can see why Paul is pressing home this point, can't you? His joy is bound up in this church, and unless they're united, unless they get this relationship sorted out, unless they get their direction reconfigured, Paul fears for them. And so he writes this letter, and particularly this chapter, focusing on this. So they make my joy complete by being like-minded. I'm going to just expand on that a little bit. Being like-minded, what does it mean? It doesn't mean... Look, I like Eurasis, okay? Oh, back in the homeland, they call them kebabs. But here they're called Eurasis. But, but look, I can imagine you give one of those to Ricky uh, you know, for dinner, and she may be repulsed at the thought of it, at the sight of it. Okay? But for, um, you know, you know, for somebody else, Michael, I mean, Michael loves the Euros, don't you, Michael? Yeah. You do. See, the, that diversity exists between us, doesn't it? I mean, you can take, for example, we've got Emma there, who 
pray for some beautiful forest. Thank you, Emma. I'm sure Emma loves gathering 20-odd six-year-olds in a classroom and teaching them about life and Christ, educating them. I I'm sure she gets a thrill for that. from that. That's why she does it. But you put Brenton in that scenario and he'd be in a panic. Absolute panic. He just wouldn't see. But you put Brenton underneath a car engine that's falling apart and he's in his element. And that diversity exists. We're different. We're so different from each other. You put Greg, I don't know, I don't know where would be a bad place for Greg. I don't know. You put Greg preaching the sermon next week. And I'm sure he'll be, he'll be having palpitations. But put him behind a keyboard and ask him to write a piece of literature. And he's a whiz kid. But you put Stephanie in that situation and she'd be telling me off before the service whilst I'm trying to put the IT together. <laughs> Thanks, Stephanie. <laughs> And see, so we, we, there's all this diversity between us, and it's good that we look different, we like different things. And here's the thing about Jesus let me tell you, Jesus loves diversity. And if you don't believe that, put on a pair of snorkels and dump, jump into the Great Barrier Reef, and you tell me what God thinks of diversity. He loves it. He's created this world with all the diversity you see and he wants diversity to exist. What we must never do is to have church that's monoculture. We mustn't. Do you know old missionaries used to do that? Back when they used to travel to India, British missionaries used to drag along organs into the villages in places like place India. And, and in, in 40 degrees centigrade, centigrade, they used to preach and insist that they're Congregation dressed in suits and ties. Singing 17th century hymns. We must never inflict a church with a monoculture. There is no culture. When you read the New Testament, all we see is tenants of, of worship services. What does a worship service look like? Whatever you want it to look like according to your environment, so long as it has the proclamation of God's word. Prayer, uh, the sacraments, or, or breaking of bread and, and baptism and church discipline, says Calvin. As long as we have those elements, our culture needs to be diverse. And maybe even Living Word Bible Church needs more diversity. It's what we try and sing. He knows this this morning a really old hymn and a really new song. It, it, it's, it's picturing. Can you see we're modelling diversity? It's why Sarah's got a bandana on her head and I haven't. <laughs> it looks trendy. We, and so there is to be this diversity, but within that diversity, without scorching that diversity, which Jesus loves, there's to be an, an element, one element, that cuts across all that diversity that brilliant diversity, and is single-minded and focused. And that is Jesus Christ and the Gospel. Jesus Christ and the Gospel. Here's what Hansen writes. I, just, I do need a drink of water, actually. Would somebody just mind? Thank you. Um, thank you. So here's what Hansen, the commentator, 
writes, Paul is not asking them to have the same thoughts or feelings about everything. Paul is not squelching human creativity, nor is he prohibiting personal diversity. He's calling his friends to seek the same goal with a like mind. That's what Christ is doing here. With all our beauty of being different, is to, on this one point on Jesus and on his purpose to advance in this world, he wants us all to have that in common, to be single-minded about that. Conduct that leads to church unity. Let me move on. He says, so he moves on next to having the same love. This is harkening back to two weeks ago. That goes back to verse 1. In verse 1, you may remember, or we would have read, or you heard Pippin and Greg, this verse, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from, from his love, and we said that's God's love, if any comfort from God's love, he's now drawing this into verse 2 when he, when he says these words, having the same love. Paul is reminding them that at the foundation of church unity is, in verse 1, it was God's love for them. Thank you, Katie. That's brilliant. In verse 1, he was reminding them of God's love for them. Now in verse 2, he's reminding them that God's love for them is to become the basis and the model for their love for each other, having the same love, having that love that you've witnessed and experienced from God to you, that's what I want you to extend, says Paul, in being a unified church, having this love. We know something of God's love, don't we, when we look at the cross, for God so loved the world. And Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's that kind of love that's to exist within Christ's community to ensure this, this unity of purpose. So in the next part of verse 2, he, he expands that. It's having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. A deep camaraderie of this uniting of souls to become a one person, to work together, to move together, to be synchronised. I guess, look, you could use synchronised swimming, but I was thinking, do you remember school sports days? You used to have events like, I think uh, you'll see this one here, three-legged, the three-legged race. Did you ever do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember doing that. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, there used to be so much fun, kids doing that. That'll be coming up next year at the school, sports day, all this kind of stuff. It's fabulous. And... Uh, and look, well, you, you know, the egg and spoon and, and the sack race, I remember that. But this was always the one that was the, the most amusing, is still the most amusing to watch. Because you're trying to put two six-year-olds together. You know, they quite haven't worked. They're barely walking and running themselves. And to expect them to run in unison like this, synchronized, is hilarious. Hey, that's what the calling of the gospel is, Paul. To have one spirit and purpose is to imagine that the church here is somehow in this triune relationship of three legs. And together, to make this work, we have to do, to run in pace, in purpose, in direction. It's got to be the same way. It's got to be in timing. It's got to be for the same goal. 
to walk together. So we are a diverse people, but our diversity comes, is unified in the fact that we're loved by one God who is a diverse being working perfectly in unity. You know, one of the wonderful things is about the Bible, everything that God asks of us, he demonstrates. You talk about unity, you find that in, in Jesus. Unified with the Father and the Spirit in one purpose. And it's to that that we're called. We're a team and our enemy. And this is what Satan is doing. I know we don't like to think of him, and that's a good thing. Don't think of him. But just take a moment for now just to acknowledge this. He is real. He is at work. And his primary weapon against the church is this disunification. It's his primary tool. So Paul calls him to have the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He moves on to verse 3. Paul continues, Do nothing, this is, this is conduct that leads to church unity, you see. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Again, Paul has already spoken about this back in earlier in the chapter 1 when, he's, when he talks about these people who preach Jesus out of selfish ambition. Look, verse 7, well, I'll start at 15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do so knowing that I pray for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ, and this, is, this, this is, happens today, out of selfish ambition. Wow. That I can preach Jesus as a way of self-betterment. We can have that mindset. I could be doing that. And can you see Paul's point here? Is that in this oneness, in this three-legged race, in this church moving in Jesus and the gospel, all self-ambition, motivations of temporal, personal glory, has to be set aside. It can exist. If it can exist in preachers, it can exist in Sunday school staff. It can exist in singers. It can exist in IT personnel. It can exist in every part of our world. A self-motivation. I don't want to sound judgmental, but sometimes I wonder if some of the big names in our world end up giving so much of their, their wealth at the end of their lives to charity... Because they know they're going to meet their maker soon. <laughs> you know, and they just want to be sure. You know, and when they get there, they've got something to say or show. You see, you can see, can't you, how the, the most wonderful things we do can be self-motivated, can be ambitions of wanting to promote self. Here's what someone said. Someone said, well, love begins when someone's, someone else's needs are more important than my own. The needs of Jesus' church and the gospel are more important than me making a name for myself in ministry. Moreover, so there's not to be selfish ambition, but there's to be humility. Do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Humility is a, a tough one, isn't it? The minute you say, I'm incredibly humble. <laughs> you demonstrate that you're not humble, don't you? It's, and, and, and even for, the, for these Christians in Philippi, in this Greco-Roman world, humility was a stinky word. They didn't believe in it. 
They look down on it. If you were humble, it's almost as though you were less than you should be. It was something to be embarrassed about. Your humble existence wasn't something you were proud about. It was something you were ashamed of. And so Paul is calling, reminding the people, calling them to be counter-cultural. Hey, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because the world out there is a fast-running stream and it takes the salmon who's alive to swim against them. Paul is calling for them to be counter-cultural in actually being humble and isn't that what Jesus demonstrated? It's what Paul is demonstrating. And so this humility is to lead to, but in humility, considering others better than themselves. Considering others better than themselves. Here's what Gordon Fee, the commentator, writes. Others in their community are not necessarily better than they are, or better than I am, but their needs and concerns surpass my own. Can you see what Paul is saying? We're not saying someone is, in any sense, better, either ontologically, in essence, or by their status. That's not what's been said, but it's a preference for someone else's needs over our own. We may be better educated, we may be better looking, we just may be better. But others' needs and needs of others, this is what we bring to the church, surpass my own needs. And look, and here's the thing, I, I, I guess what you just said as we're just thinking about the needs of others. It's not to say that our needs don't matter. Hey, we've all come this morning and we're emphasising the importance of putting other people's needs ahead of ours. But the reality is we, we come, I've come, maybe you haven't, I've got my own needs. A whole bucket loads of needs. Seriously. Okay? And, so, and, and, and it's not as though we, Paul is ignoring any personal need. Look, look how he writes this sentence. Each of you should look out not only for your own interests. There is, in a sense... A warrant, and it's right that, that, that we are mindful, that we do come in need. And, and yes, we do want those needs fulfilled. We, we may be lacking this morning. But, and, and, you know, and you may be sitting here, look, you may have come to church in poverty. And when, when the offering was taken, the last thing that you, you're thinking about, you know, how, can, how can I possibly give when I'm going to struggle to buy a meal for my family today? You know, you may be asked to pray for somebody else. You're thinking, you want me to pray? If only you knew how much prayer I needed. But here's the point, here's the point that, that Paul would, would make, and it's how our Lord made it. Christian, we, God is never in debt. He's never in our debts. We never serve God and go away with less than we need. We will never give to God's work financially and lack ourselves. He promised that. We'll ne never lack the peace we need to serve God whilst we're praying for that peace for others. We'll never lack the time we need to fix the car or do the fence 
or mow the lawn when we first ensure we have time to serve Jesus' purposes. This is what he said. Look, I'm going to recall a couple of, of, of texts. One from the old, one from the new. Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, which means put his purposes first, go all out for God, and what, is, what does that turn to? As you go all out for God, as you give to God, as you serve God, as you think for God, as you labour for God, as you delight yourself in God, he will give you the desires of your hearts. Can you see the, the pattern? Matthew 6, Jesus says the same thing. But sir, first seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then, 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 then these things will be dealt with too. Do you remember, I, was, uh, I don't know if you're doing the Bible marathon, we'll reset it and restart it in, in January, reading through the Bible together. But at the moment in the Bible marathon, it's Elijah 17 and 18, I think it was 17 yesterday, no, 18 yesterday, 17 day before. And, and, and Elijah turns up after he's been in the brook uh, at this widow's house, and she hasn't, got, she hasn't got anything to eat. She's going to starve to death. She's got a bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And she's going to bake a cake, feed her son, and die. Do you remember that story with Elijah in the, in the famine? In the, when there's been no uh, rain for three years? And, then, and so Elijah says to her, Don't worry, that flour will never run out. And that oil will never run out. But here's the test. Do you remember what he says to her? What, what, she, what she's to do? Does anyone remember the story? What is she to do? Yeah, she's to make the first cake for him. <laughs> Not for a boy. <laughs> you know, for him. And it's what Jesus does for us, isn't he? You want to be sure that you, you make ends meet? Don't neglect tithing to God's work. You want to be sure you have enough energy to get through this week? Exert all your energy this afternoon in putting this place away. You want to be sure that you're receiving prayer? Pray for somebody after the service. Go up to them, say, hey, can I pray with you? It's as we give, it's as the kingdom is first, as we delight ourselves in God. That's where it turns. That's where it turns says Jesus. And so Paul in writing to this church, asking them to be sacrificial, isn't ignoring their needs. But he knows that as they put hand to the plough and, and serve the master, the master will ensure that they are supplied, made well. To, in order to serve and to have sufficient. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look, we're going to finish. Let me just quote Anthony here again. When believers are preoccupied with their personal agendas, they will put different directions and split the church into different interest groups. By focusing on their egocentric priorities, they will be disunified. That's what's going on in Philippi. It's not what's going on in Living Word Bible Church. I want to just remind you about that. It's not what's going on in Living Word Bible Church. This kind of disunity doesn't exist here by the grace and mercy of God. We do work together, serve together, give together. And there was a slight deficiency last month, but I'm pretty sure, as Sid has exhorted us, 
will rise to that occasion. People will give. And maybe next month there'll be a surplus. Next week we'll serve together. We'll worship together. And we're doing that. And, and really, these issues don't exist by the grace of God in Living Word Bible Church. So why preach it? Why not just skip over chapter 2? Why? Because the devil is at work trying to start these fires even in Living Word Bible Church. That's his purpose. To, 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 to start up a little friction there, a little backbiting there, and, and a little, uh, please don't take this personally, a bit of self-centered conduct there. A, a bit of, well, I, I need a Big Mac this afternoon, so you know, who, who cares about the church? You know, someone else can give this afternoon. I'm having a Big Mac. Well, I'm going to rush up today. Okay, look, look, you may legitimately need to go. That's fine. But this is just... I'm going to rush off because I've got to do my garden. You should see the state of my lawn. And it's a rental property. And my landlord is in this church. Don't tell him I told you that. That my grass needs cutting in the back garden. Don't tell him. Just come tomorrow morning. Help me get it sorted. Okay? Before he sees it. Look, these issues don't exist here. But let's be wise to them. Let's be clued up to them. Let's be ready to combat them. Let's endeavour to conduct ourselves in one mind, in one purpose for the gospel. And as we do so, all these other things that are weighing us down and are of concern to us will also be given to us as well. Amen.